you would take out the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 2. What a powerful uh, word of hope as we look at the world around us and how many times uh, over the last several months have you been tempted to ask God, what in the world are you doing? Because we so often see the world in light of our own thoughts and our own wisdom. We think if you would do it this way, it would be better. And we probably wouldn't say it this way. We would probably want to express at times, God, I think you're messing up. And yet the answer from the song we just heard sung is the same answer given to Job. Who in the world do you think you are? Did you create everything? Do you hold everything in its place? Are you orchestrating all the little finite details of the world and they're all perfectly put together and they're all perfectly heading to to where I want them, where all things are being summed up in Jesus Christ? Who in the world do you think you are? And yet he answers us for our good so that we would look to Christ and we would know him through Christ and we would know that he's summing all things up in Christ. And one of the places we experience that is in the life of the church. So often we look at the world around us and we do feel hopelessness and we feel despair and we wonder what we should say and what we should do and where do we look for answers, where do we look for hope and so often we find it in the church and there's no better place today than to look to the issue of unity. We see a world that is extremely divided. It's even hard to pinpoint how we're divided. It's so chaotic and it's so crazy and it's so, uh, there's so much rage and anger and we look at the world, we can't even make sense out of it. And yet the issue of unity in the gospel makes sense out of it, but it does so in the life of the church because the church is the only place we can truly be united because we're united around Christ who is King, who is Lord. And so today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I, I become so overwhelmed with the chaos and the words in the world. I think I've said this for three weeks now. And frustrated, and you want to say something, you want to do something, you want to hear something different. And the words of Scripture are so precious because they're all true and you don't have to doubt. You don't have to wonder if the news is fake. It's good news and it's real and it undergirds everything. And so we look at the Word of God today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Oh God, I pray today that you would teach us according to your word. Teach us what it means to be humble in the gospel, for your glory and the good of others. God, teach us what it means to be joyful witnesses 
who are united and not divided. And help us to understand and see that only happens by your gospel, through the power of your spirit, under the rule of your grace and mercy and goodness and kindness. May we fill it. May we experience the hope of unity in the gospel today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What do your kids think about that? It's a really weird, awkward question that I received. Actually received it more than once. But when you begin to tell people that you have uh, six kids, as uh, we do in our family, you immediately turn into this almost impersonal, inhuman oddity that people can just ask you whatever question they want to. It doesn't matter how weird, outlandish, or rude it might be. They feel like you're almost like a museum piece that they can look at with their head turned and ask questions and survey and, and figure out what's going on here. And I remember telling someone, we, we have six kids. And the first question out of their mouth was, well, what do your kids think about that? Now, if you begin to think through that, is that not a weird, awkward question? How in the world do you even ask your kids what they think about that? And and I don't know. I'm sure they think certain things about that, but I've never felt like I need to sit down and and tell them, especially before it happens. By the time we realize that, that we're having another kid, it's too late to make sure everybody's okay with it. I remember even when we were adopting two of our children, we never really sat down with the rest of them and said, do you mind if we do this? No, it's, it's always been, here's another one. We love you. Now you love them like we love you. And it was just non-negotiable. That's the way we're going to work in our family. We're, we're never going to sit down and make sure you're okay with it. We're going to love one another. And so as we see the gospel begin to move, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And and we see the gospel, even in the book of Acts, we see the gospel move into places that you would have never imagined, into Samaria, into places where, where, where the people of God, the Jews, are going, God, what in the world are you doing? You we didn't give you permission to save these people. Well, you didn't ask us if it was okay the Gentiles come into the kingdom. And and God begins to move and the gospel begins to take root. And and it's difficult and it's hard. But God never asks us, is it okay for me to bring new people into the church? He never asked the Jews, is it okay to bring Gentiles into the church? And and think about this. The Apostle Paul, who uh, who is killing Christians, he is the New Testament Osama bin Laden, he is a terrorist who hates Christians. He's out to stamp out their message and he is headed out to kill Christians. God blinds him. He believes the gospel. He becomes a Christian. He he begins to serve Christ as one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary ever. And God never asked the church, are you okay with it? And you know what? When Paul started showing up for church, people were freaked out. What is he doing here? This is the man who has been trying to have us killed. God, what are you doing? And God simply said, here's another one. I love him 
you love him the way that I love him. And so Paul, in turn, looks to the church and he says, this is the way unity happens in the church. God's not going to ask you, are you okay with one another? But he is going to command you to love one another no matter how hard it is. And the reality is, if the gospel is real, and if the gospel is true in the context of the church, we will have no problem loving one another. It will be natural for us to love one another. And so as Paul talks about fellowship and unity around the gospel, and it is empowered with love, he he explains here it is the love of the gospel. Notice verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, the word encouragement means to walk alongside. And so he would be saying, if you are walking alongside one another in Christ, if together you are walking with Christ, if there is any comfort, any security, any peace from love, the love of Christ, Christ has set his love upon you. He he has sacrificed his life for you, for your sin. And if you experience this comfort... He says, if there's any participation in the spirit, the spirit who binds us together in the gospel, if you know the fellowship of the gospel and any affection and sympathy, the word affection here is a beautiful word. It means tender mercy. We we, we think about God's mercy and it means he's not judging us. He hasn't condemned us. No, he judged his son. He condemned his son for us. But it's not this abstract thing God did. No, he was done out of gentleness and tenderness. And if you know the gentleness and tenderness of God in his mercy. Notice he also says any sympathy or compassion. The word here, uh, it, it refers to the same word that is used when Jesus, he is looking over the city of Jerusalem and he looks out and he sees sin and he sees wickedness and he sees people are confused. And the text in Matthew 9 says he had compassion upon them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And the word compassion, it is this deep seated, gut wrenching, almost you want to throw up. Because you want to have pity on the people you are looking at. It is a sincere form of kindness. Not an abstract. It it, it, it literally overcomes your body when you see the sin. And you have pity and sorrow. And and Paul says if any of these things, the, the encouragement, you're walking with Christ, you know the love of Christ, you know the fellowship of the Spirit binding us together in the gospel, you know tender mercy, and you know the sympathy of God upon your state, He had pity upon you and your sin, then you're going to be united in the church. It's going to be natural. If you know the gospel of God's love, if you stand before God and you know the joy Of understanding you are a rebel and you are an enemy of God. And and Romans says we hated God. We were at war with God. And yet he set his love upon us. And Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. While we were ungodly. In your sin. You had done nothing good for God to pursue you. No, he loved you in your sin. If you know that, you're going to love others in their sin. And you're going to naturally love others who sin against you. And you're going to pursue unity out of love. The person who gossips about you. You're not just going to shun them. Run away from them. I never want to be around them again. 
Now you're going to pursue them out of love, the same love God pursued you with as an enemy, as his enemy. It, 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 the, the person on Facebook, and this goes on a lot now, I'm going to put my opinion and I'm going to, I'm going to put my view out on social media and then just about 15 minutes later, that other person in the church puts an opposing view out and it's sort of snarky and you realize, oh, that's sort of a subtweet. That's sort of a sub, sub post. I know that was about me. I know what they're doing there. And, and instead of shunning them at church on Sunday, you're looking for them. Where are they? Not because you're going to hash it out, because you love them. And you want to communicate love for them no matter what. And you pursue them in love. He says, if you know the tender mercy of God, meaning he did not condemn you, he condemned his son, you're not going to condemn others in the church. Meaning you're not going to dig in and you're going to form alliances and grudges against others. And you're going to feel that power. You're going to feel that joy of alienating others. No, you're not going to condemn others in that way. You're going to pursue others. And at times when people sin against you, it's going to be very difficult and it's going to be very hard. But you're going to pursue reconciliation instead of alienation. You're going to get together and you're going to say, what did I do wrong? Now, that's a hard question when you assume everybody else has done something wrong. But you come to the moment and you say, what did I do wrong? Because I want to confess my sin and I want to repent and I want to work this out. Why? Because I know the tender mercy of God. God has come to me in mercy. He didn't condemn me. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to come in humility. And we're going to work this out together. He says, if you know compassion, when you hear about other people's sin, you're not going, oh my goodness, that's so disgusting. Oh my goodness, they're so stupid. Oh my goodness, why would they do that? And never have anything to do with them. No genuine compassion, gut-wrenching compassion goes, oh my goodness. I do feel sorry for them, but the pity in your gut causes you to pursue them, to pray for them. Oh, my God, would you protect them from their sin? Oh, my goodness. How can I how how can I serve them and help walk with them through this very difficult time of sin and rebellion? What can I do for them? Paul says, if you know, if you know the gospel, you're going to live out the gospel in unity around love and mercy and compassion in the church. And so you have to ask the question when you think about unity and you have to think about what you are doing for unity. Did Jesus alienate you? Then why would you alienate anyone in the church? Did Jesus condemn you? Then why would your first reaction be to condemn? Has Jesus demanded more of you? Is Jesus disgusted with you? then why would you be disgusted with the sin of others? No, we pursue them in love and mercy and compassion. And he continues here and he says, if the gospel is true, you're going to pursue unity in these ways. And notice verse two, he says, complete my joy. Now, think about the apostle Paul. He's not just planting church after church after church after church, sending his numbers back to the mission headquarter and saying, we got these churches rolling. Here are the numbers. Now, the Apostle Paul is always in anguish about what's going on with the churches after he left them. And here he is in anguish over the church in Philippi. And he is in anguish over their unity. I know there's division in the church, Jew, Gentile. People are bickering. But I want you to notice, complete my joy, fulfill my joy by being united. 
I want you walking in the gospel in unity. And notice how this is done. Notice, being of the same mind. Now, this is a unique word because it's not just a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that encompasses all of you, uh, all of who you are, your whole person. And he says, when you have the same mind, notice, look at the verse, having the same love. If you're thinking the same way in the church, you're going to love the same way, out of the same love, the love of the gospel. And what this is going to look like is you're going to be in full accord and one mind. You're going to be as one person who is sounding different notes, but the same message together. Notice the word full accord. It is complete harmony. Now, harmony is something I know nothing about. Nothing. And even when I tried to talk about it in the last service, I just botched it up and said a bunch of stupid things. So you're going to have to bear with me. And I think you'll get the point. But, but up here today, we have had myriads, I would say thousands, and if I'm wrong, correct me, thousands of notes and tones and tunes that have been di- displayed for us today. Now, if Clay got up here today and he started singing... And he just launched into to, to one note and just held it out for three minutes. We would say, what is wrong with you? you if he just got up here and what if he just said, Jesus, I'm not going to try to sing. And he just said it for three minutes in the same tone, whatever, whatever tune. We would say, you're going to get fired. That's not what you get paid to do. And if Micah got over here and he just held down the keyboard, the the keys on the keyboard, he just held it down for three minutes while the rest of the band is playing, we would say, are you okay, son? We got to talk. Are you okay? And and if Katie just got up here and she said, oh, I'm going to take over today. And she just busted out singing. We would probably enjoy it. But the rest of the band would go, what in the world? She's just taking over. And and what goes on? There's all kinds of different sounds. There's all kinds of different tunes. There's all kinds of different chords. There's all kinds of different tones. And they're all put together up here to make harmony that sounds beautiful. And Paul says that's what the gospel looks like in the church. God doesn't call us to sameness. He doesn't. He doesn't call us all to be same. When the gospel moved into Gentile territory and churches were forming, God didn't go to the churches and say, Jew, Gentile, pick one. Y'all going to be a Gentile church or a Jew church? No, he said, Jew, Gentile, love one another. You're different. I don't want you to be same. I want you to love one another despite your differences. Why? That makes much of the gospel. Our gospel is weak. Our gospel is so boring. Our gospel is bland when it is sameness. But our gospel is beautiful. And it is harmonious. And it sings this glorious song when we're all different. When we're all different, but we're clinging to the gospel. We want our church to be full of different races. We do. To be honest with you, this scene right now is a little disappointing. 
We want more ethnicity here. Not because we want to be culturally relevant or we're part of a movement. Because we believe the gospel. And we want to be more diverse than our community. More diverse than any movement you would see. We want to be diverse. Why? Because diversity in the church displays the love God has for the nations. Diversity in the church shows the diverse nature of God's mission. He's saving people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they're all different, and they gather around one gospel, and we want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. We want to taste it, and we want to see it. We want to make much of all kinds of gifts in the church, skills, talents. There's things that you do very well, and we want to know about those things, because we're not going to just lift up certain gifts, certain abilities platform gifts. No, there's things you can do that we need to know about them. You are different in your gifts and your talents, but it's the same gospel that we want to lift up. And so we want to see those things. We want to see the diversity in our gifts because they remind us of God and his vast plan as he is making disciples of all nations. We want all kinds of experiences in our church. There are folks here who were saved in the backwoods of eastern Kentucky at a tent revival in a rural church. And then there's some of us who were saved at the mega church where everything was nice and everything was pretty. And then there's some of you getting saved in a warehouse. And we're we're kind of in the middle of those two things. Kind of redneck, kind kind of a little more modern. And folks are getting saved. And we all come together with all our different experiences. Some of you go, you mean there's churches that don't meet in a warehouse? Because you don't know anything else. And this is so weird and this is awkward and this is the way you think about Christianity. And there's folks getting saved in campus ministry and there's folks getting saved in BFGs. And and, and it reminds us that God is sovereignly working uh, around the world in different circumstances, different backgrounds. Some of you got saved in a honky-tonk. It's okay. You're wondering how that happens. I don't know. It's just a spur of the moment illustration. But we want to know the diversity. Because we know the gospel. And diversity displays God's wisdom. The gospel doesn't mute us in the sameness or dull our sound. So we want to gather more and more sounds, more and more instruments, more and more tones, more and more chords. We want to gather them together to see the glory of God. And here's a point that needs to be made. Even as we do this, we're different. We're not the same. Our love will be different. Our love will be different. There are certain sins, and I'm going to confess this today, that are really hard for me to get past. There's certain sin. That, that angers me and it's hard for me to love. I hate, I loathe the sin of racism. I, I grew up three minutes from where Nathan Bedford Forrest was born. I grew up 15 minutes from where the KKK was formed. And I myself grew up in a, that context and I struggled as a young man with racism. And it's hard for me to look on that sin and not see its wickedness. I have two black sons. It's hard for me not to be so angered when I see the sin of racism. It's also also hard for me to deal with the sin of laziness. And laziness is a sin. And I struggle with that. 
It's hard for me to deal with the sin of, of passivity in a home. It's hard for me. So here's the point. If you're looking for me to be the one who loves, our love is going to be weak and it's going to be tepid. Because it's hard for me to love. And I struggle with certain sins to love. But if we're all loving together, guess what? The sound of your love overwhelms my lack of love at times. And then you love me despite my lack of love and it helps me love others. And this is the beautiful sound of love in the church. We love one another no matter our sin, no matter our experiences, no matter even our lack of love. We still love one another and there is the beautiful sound of the gospel in the church. But Paul gets to the root of how this happens in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, 3, verse 3 and 4, it's the heart of where this love, of where this unity comes from. And it is the way in which we view ourselves. And Paul's going to explain here, joyful humility before God displays the worth of of the gospel for the joy of others. That's the statement here. That that we understand joyful humility before God. And when we understand that, we display the worth of God for the joy of others. Now, what does he mean? Selfish ambition. It means I'm only looking out for my notoriety. My ambition. I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I want to have the position. I want to have the power. And it's all about me. He says you can do nothing from that within the context of the church. Or conceit. It is to brag about yourself. Now, the word also means empty. It is an empty brag. You say, look at me. And yet before God, what is there to look at? It's empty. There's nothing there. And when you exalt yourself out of selfish ambition, it's empty. But how are we to do things in the church? With humility. And humility means lowliness. But it's not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less, and it's to rightly understand yourself before God. To rightly understand who God is and who you are. So get it straight. Who are you before God? And when you do that, you're not going to look out for yourself. You're not going to do things out of selfish ambition or deceit. You're going to look out for your own interest, what's in your best interest. Your best interest is joyful humility. And when you get that, you're also going to look out for the interest of others. So we see here, joyful humility begins by understanding who you really are. Selfish ambition is wiped away in humility. Conceit is abolished when you understand who you are in humility. You know, you would be happier if you really understood who you, understood who you were before God. If you stood before Him and you said... You're the creator, I'm not the creator. You're the one that created everything and you make all things happen. And and so who am I to to question you? Who am I to, to long for my way? No, you're the creator. You're the beginning, you're the end. If you stood before God and you and you saw him as your judge, I've sinned, not just against others. Not just against generic things in the world or with generic things in the world. I've sinned against God, and so I deserve His judgment. And so you stand before God as your Creator, who you deserve His judgment. 
But you also stand before God as your Savior. The only way I can be saved for my sin before my Creator is if my Creator saves me and He has in Jesus Christ. And when you really understand that, you're happier. Because you're not trying to control things. You're not the Creator. You're happier. Because you don't live with the guilt of your sin. No, He has saved you from your sin in Jesus. And so humility starts with really understanding who you are before God and understanding you have no business exalting yourself. Ever. So if you're not going to exalt yourself, who are you going to exalt? God. God as your Creator. God as your judge, but God is your gracious Savior in Jesus Christ. And you understand that you can only bring glory to God in the gospel. It's not just this generic, I'm not going to exalt myself, I must exalt God. Well, how do you do that in the gospel? Jesus is the only one who can save me from my sins. Jesus is the only one that can reverse the curse of death. Jesus is the only one who can raise me up out of my coffin. So I'm going to exalt him. And these things come together in verses 3 and 4 when we understand that we glorify God in the gospel. Because when we glorify God in the gospel, guess what we're doing? We're not just looking out for our own interest. Notice the word. Not only for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Those things come together in the gospel. Sometimes we're thinking, how do I live out and glorify God in the world, but also love others? Sometimes we put those things at odds. I need to live to the glory of God, but I also need to love others. How do I do it? In the gospel. The degree to which you are committed to the gospel and lifting the glory of God up in Jesus Christ in the gospel, you will be bringing glory to God as the only one who can save you from your sins while bringing joy to others. Because their joy is only going to be complete in the gospel. You can't give them joy apart from the gospel. So the more you lift up the gospel, you are working for the joy of others in the church. And so we don't have to think, how do I live to the glory of God? Exalt the gospel. Preach the gospel. Lift up Jesus Christ. How do I love you? I exalt the gospel. I live out the gospel. And that's how unity works in the church. A happy church is a church committed to the glory of God in the gospel for the joy of all peoples. That's how it works. We are committed to... I think I just said our mission statement, didn't I? Was that right? Uh, We are committed to the supremacy of Christ. We're committed to the glory of God. And we do so by holding up the gospel. And when we hold up the gospel, we're also loving others. And this is how Paul would explain it in Philippians. He would say, to the degree you're willing to suffer for the gospel is the degree to which you will bring glory to God and the degree which you will love others. So suffering is a part of it. I will suffer for the gospel because it ain't ain't about me. It's about God. And it's about His glory. So I'll suffer for that to prove His worth. I'll suffer to love you in the gospel. So sometimes what that means is I have to share the gospel with people. And it's awkward and it's weird and they don't like it. But if I really love them, I will do it. Why? Because I'm committed to the glory of God and they're good. And you begin to live like that in the church. And you begin to inconvenience yourself in ways that make no sense. In the church, we look at one another and we say, why would you do that for me? 
Hey, I need some help with this. I'll be there in five minutes. Oh, no, no, no. I'm I'm on my way. Why? Because it ain't about me. And I want you to experience mercy mercy and grace. And so I'm going to serve you in whatever way I can. Why? It's about God and it's about the glory of the gospel. And I want you to experience that joy. So I will embody that. So I will give. I will suffer. I will risk my safety. Because it's not about me. It's about God and His glory. And the more I risk my comfort and safety, I am saying Jesus is worth it. His glory is weighty in my life. It weighs me down. At the same time as I do that, I'm loving others because I'm working for their joy. You see, a lot of parents probably aren't setting their kids down saying, are y'all okay with us having more kids? Thought we'd ask you first. Probably not doing that. And if you did, you're a really weird parent. And they're going to have some really weird conversations later on in life with you. I'm probably not doing that. But I do know a lot of parents who struggle this way. When, when you begin to have more kids, when you move from one to two, there's always this mystery. And you wonder, how can I love more kids the same way I love this one? I, I remember that even in our own home. We, we love Titus so much. Like, we have this one kid. Let us just love him for a while. This is great. This is awesome. And then you're going to have Nathan. Well, how in the world are you going to love more kids? How are we going to love them the same? And then there's another, another, and another, and another. How are we going to do that? Well, as a parent, you know, God just expands your heart. And you... You may say, I love them the same, but that's not true. And and what I mean by that is it can't be sameness because they're all different. And what God does in all their differences is he just gives you a deeper love and a deeper love and a more complex love and a love you can't even figure out at times. And you would never look back now and say, how in the world are we going to do that? No, you know the joy of it. Your heart is expanded in ways you never imagined. Well, think about God, who in this moment is bringing more and more. In this very moment around the world, millions of people are hearing the gospel. People are believing the gospel. And he is imprinting his love upon them in all kinds of different contexts, different areas of the world. Different races, different ethnicities, different circumstances. People are coming to Jesus today with different sin, different kinds of sin, different kinds of backgrounds. And God's not saying, how can I love one more? No, he's saying, here they are, love them. Love them the way that I love you. And he's saying, do you want, you want to know joy? You, 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 want, to love, you, you want to know the, the glory, of the joy of loving others? Oh, be committed to the same gospel. Love them the way that I love you. Oh, and there's deep, deep joy that is found in knowing the love of God and showing the love of the gospel and experience it in the context of the church. Look around this room. Think about, some of you actually do that when I say that, which I think is cool. But, but look at the n- amount of people you have the opportunity to love. And look at all the opportunity of joy before you. Oh, if I would just commit myself to their good no matter what. 
Think about the depths of love in your soul. And then look around this room at all the people that, that love you. And this is where joy and unity is experienced in the context of the church. Joyful humility before the glory of God, working for the worth of the gospel and the joy of one another.